0: Welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill.
1: Welcome back to the show This is episode 242. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr.
0: And it's a Monday and... Yeah, Monday after a very rough week in this country. Uh, And uh, I I think one of the biggest dangers is, you know, perhaps that we jump back too quickly into normalcy. That uh, it seems to me that uh, just the fact that there was an attempt for a mass assassination of two former presidents, a vice president... Secretary of State several sitting sitting senators and Robert De Niro you know, affected Bobby D Yeah and then there were African Americans targeted two were killed in a in a grocery store shooting in Louisville, Kentucky there could have been more but they, the gunmen could not get into a African American church and then of course the horrific killing of 11 people while they worshiped at a synagogue in Pittsburgh so this was the week in America that uh we just had, And a week from tomorrow, America goes to the polls and it remains to be seen if is going to do anything to respond to to say we don't want this to be who we are right now. I mean, it is who we are. It's part of who we are. But the question is, is this something that we want to say we need to change? Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, we know we need change, but I mean, and again, part of what I was suggesting we talked about today um, are... I'm not presuming there's one faithful response to the time that we're in right now. And uh, certainly one faithful response, which I think was moving, away, a group of mourners in, in Pittsburgh uh, started chanting, Vote. Oh, uh, yeah. And I think that's very powerful, which is a diametric opposed to an irresponsible position one of our friends and colleagues took on Facebook. Uh, Advocating the morally vacuous position that Christians have the option not to vote in a representative democracy. Of course you have the option not to do it. It's just woefully irresponsible given the times we live in. And it's a false moral superiority. It gives you a sense of I can rise above it by not voting. Uh, Which I um, I think is not really a legitimate option in a representative democracy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i trying to think if I could think of a... I mean, I guess it is one thing, too, if you're, like, Amish, and, I mean, it's not something I agree oh, yeah,
0: with. You don't even but, have to be Amish. There are, there are people who are, are Mennonites who don't vote, yeah.
1: But if you're a Mennonite and super integrated into society, then it seems to be harder, a harder case than if you're a sectarian and really sectarian
0: if you go to the post office if you drive on roads right right i mean it's, yeah, it's yeah. like
1: if you're if you're really really sectarian you benefit from the tax laws or, yeah.
0: yeah, or, or paid so yeah i think uh there are very few people who totally are consistent in that now are, is there a protest can there be a protest vote certainly there are times when there can be a protest vote but um i do think in, in some very real ways there's some binary choices going on right now in the country and uh, I think uh, we need to I think voting certainly is one um, one response and um, voting for a change. I was also thinking uh, if I was a Donald Trump if I was a Christian with real convictions and had voted I suppose the guy you are right now <laughs> I suppose the guy I was right now but if I was someone who supported Donald Trump, uh, particularly, let's say, around – you know, which there's certainly a segment of conservative Christians, both evangelicals and probably Roman Catholics as well, who have voted Republican because they wanted to, if not overturn Roe v. Wade, at least limit abortion because of the conviction of being uh, pro-life – at least they're pro-life in the sense of they're against abortion – uh, whether or not they're consistently pro-life, that's another discussion. So let's say I'm a person and I've gotten – I have now – I have a majority on the Supreme Court who um, certainly you – know, you, have, you have a significant number of, of conservative Roman Catholics on the Supreme Court who personally, individually are opposed to abortion. So you've gotten your majority on the Supreme Court. So it seems to me one faithful response would be you could begin – to speak out and say that i cannot support x y and z that are being you know uh touted at least the candidate donald trump but i think it's the human being donald trump as well the you know hidden message the you know racial tropes that he does the lying i mean the the habitual lying whether it be about what's going on in the caravan whether it be about what other politicians think whether it just be about basic policy things you know about you know economics and and trade stuff with Canada he just he just he just lies, so it seems to me one faithful response all right i'm I support the president, maybe even you're like you have a particular reading of Romans thirteen where you think you have a moral obligation to support the president I don't think that's what Romans thirteen says, but let's say you read it that way, then it seems to me that you would a faithful response would be begin to call out. The things that Donald Trump does that in the past you have called out other politicians who you thought were immoral. It seems like that could be a, a response to what's going on right now.
1: Yeah, I think what precludes people from doing that is, is again, the tribalism. So things become so my team versus your team in a zero-sum game that I think the reason why we don't see more of that is that that just feels like – such a sort of in a zero sum game that just seems so like I'm conceding something the other side and they're going to take and run with it. and That's I think that's why it's it, it's hard for people to. I'm not saying it's a conscious deliberative process, but I think that there's le, more reticence to do what you're saying because of of that kind of and also because you know essentially Jonathan hate was on Bill Maher on friday and he was just talking about the research just even from like the 70s how much the political sort of tribal reality shapes our identity in a ways it didn't in past decades and so i i just think those sorts of things the the sort of non-all-or-nothing stance mm-hmm. you're advocating just becomes harder and harder for people
0: but then you remember a tribe you're not a christian then. Well, I mean of course I mean yeah, but no but I think that has to be said yeah no I mean of course yeah, and again that's it you know the same thing certainly I've had the same response to people who uh, are sound more like the Democratic Party platform than you do the Sermon on the Mount you know so in other words I'm, I'm I the same thing can be said about those who are liberals or progressives that were what I just said that there comes a time when you have to um, you know we, we've mentioned this I don't know if we've done a whole podcast or not but Christianity is from its inception is uniquely non-tribal.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, but I think that things devolve sometimes into folk religion and I think...
0: Well, no, it's not sometimes. Always. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's... Historically, it's always... Yeah,
1: I just think that we're at a place where these things... It's interesting, you know, you have like, you have if you look at like Clinton, Bush, and Obama, right, all of them Dealt with this sort of increasing tribalism, partisanship, divisiveness, all saw it as a problem. You know, each in a different way. You know, Clinton was the third wave, the new Democrat. That was his attempt. You had Bush, like, compassionate conservatism was an attempt. But you know, Obama, there's not a red America or blue America, and and, and all of them failed to overcome. And you, you know, it increased under each one of them. But for somebody like Donald Trump, the the divisive the divisiveness, is not a a bug in the system it's a feature right so it's no, so maybe. so he looks at that and sees an opportunity it, like, so I think you know when th- there is a sense in which Trump is not just the is not is as much of a symptom of, as anything right like it didn't this didn't start with Donald Trump but I do think what makes him different than say his predecessors and implicitly I think a, a lot of Republican lawmakers in Washington by implicitly kind of at least to some degree, by into this to the degree that they're, they're they they kind of go along with it, even if it's not some of them do it forthrightly, some of them it's just in silence right but but there's this kind of instead of trying to overcome it, let's use this sort of tribalism and divisiveness and and that's just like you know how it's just how Trump is you see just the the way he is when he's reading a statement after oh, right. I, I mean I, I, after one of these tragedies. And then look at him that very night, which you can often do on the same day at a rally. <laughs> yeah. And that's where he's animated. You know what I mean? Oh, like, right.
0: Yeah. No, that's the real Trump. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, too, in terms of even—and I uh, purposely did not listen to Sarah Sanders' press conference today. You uh, you gave me the synopsis as I walked in. Yeah, it was something, ma'am. Anyway, but, um, yeah, I mean, the fact is, if you—I don't think—I think—, I think um, There's a difference between being a racist and a bigot. And I think Donald Trump's a bigot who consistently uh, plays to racist audiences. And by that I mean, for instance, Donald Trump loves his daughter, loves his grandchildren, uh, loves Israel, and Israel loves him back. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so to say that he is anti-Semitic in terms of racism, uh, I think technically that would be wrong. But the fact that he constantly uses anti-Semitic tropes, and the fact that uh, you know he has uh, no need or uh, never feels the need to distance himself from a racist groups. Yeah, I mean, him.
1: what did Gillum, the Florida candidate for governor, say about his opponent? Was it Ron DeSales or DeSantis? He said in the debate, like, I'm not saying my opponent's a racist. I'm saying racists think he's a racist. That's yeah, like, and, and that's exactly. And, that, and that's, that's, the same that's same an interesting Trump, thing, right? that's right? yeah, yeah, it's not you know it's 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 one thing to say, you know, whether or not you say he's, but you know, David Duke, and, you know, the, the, the white nationalist crown clearly hears things he says as a, as a, as a kind of hat tip to them, you know? So, you know, yeah, I think that that, that is, that's, that's, well, that's definitely the case.
0: And I want to, you know, I have to give, I'll give my friend, uh, 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 Kudos on that because it was a discussion we were having. He was talking a little bit about some of the dynamics. It's he, There's interracial dynamics in his family. And he was talking about <laughs> this one member of his family He says, uh, you know, that he knows he's accepted by this person. They're not a racist, but they are a bigot. And I think that's the differentiation he makes. And, and I think that's probably true. Uh, probably all of that's that's, for instance, why we all need to be very careful about our own uh we all have some sort of prejudices in us so i mean for instance you can you know to, to, you don't you consciously believe god's created every all people are created equal you don't think uh there should be any uh prejudice or anything anything people should be treated badly because of their race you 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 are against all kinds of institutional racism but part of your our upbringing we all we all grew up in our own particular social settings and there are groups or there are people that make us uncomfortable. And there are times where we can act in ways that are, uh, <laughs> that are, that are based on our a kind of, a prejudices- sorry, yeah. And if you're in the majority that
1: inevitably happens, you know, like, yeah, you know, I think that this is the whole kind of, and people could argue that this is simplistic, but the whole thing like prejudice plus power equals racism. So we can all have prejudices and, and resentments, things like that. But if you don't have systemic power, there's a different. There's a limit to the degree you can take the resources and the the institutions of society and target them and systemically impact people right. that that aren't in the majority. You know, it's a different kind of.
0: I, I remember a number of years ago, I was involved in a kind of a national debate about the divestment issue, and uh, and I was talking to a person who was. Um, arguing for divestment and uh, a person who's strong social so this justice. this is
1: like in Israel, this is people, yeah, that, people arguing who, to pull out
0: of investments in companies yeah, that do business with Israel. The BDS movement, Boycott Divestment Sanctions. And a uh, guy who I actually like personally very much, and he was a strong social justice activist in a lot of areas uh, and, and lived it. He didn't just say it, he lived it out. But uh, he made some sort of statement, and I said, you know— most of the Jews I know would find what you just said there anti-Semitic. He goes, I'm not anti-Semitic at all. And those Jews are always saying stuff like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. They had a woman on the— And
0: it's uh, classic. Not yeah. not a racist, but certainly a bigot. Yeah. But
1: you can argue is that, so, yeah, I mean, is it sort of racist and, and implicitly? And not, most racism is implicit. Yeah, no, you know, exactly. it's exactly. It's you know, so on unorthodox, I had this woman who was a BDS person—
0: And Leah just since we boycott divestment. Yeah. So
1: this is a Jewish podcast and Leah Leibowitz, one of the hosts says to her, well, so let me ask you this. Let's say there's a medicine, your daughter has this critical illness and the only place the medicine that would say it could cure her is it's only manufactured in Israel. Would you?
0: Use the message.
1: Come on, it's not about that. This is not what it's about. He's like, that's, that's exactly what it's about. about.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I know it's exactly what it's about. And also the indirect effect. You know, again, the trouble and the trouble of boycotts and things like that is the almost always it's the poor people that get hurt. Okay, so like for instance, I know one company in, uh that that employed you know mostly Palestinians in the West Bank. And they were affected by a, a European boycott, and they had to lay off all the Palestinian workers. Now, again, I am totally against the occupation I'm totally against the exploitation of Palestinian li- lands. Um, I I think the Netanyahu government it's one of the worst things that ever happened to Israel. but having said that, calling for boycott divestment hurt the very people you were trying to help. You were just trying to still, they still have to feed their children and take care of their family until justice happens.
1: Yeah, I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine Or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the Thank You Roll Call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlan, Barry Stewart. Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpennig, Simone Garabedian, Jim Kirk. Samantha Konauer and Jordan DeMay. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show.
0: So, okay. So, one, we talked about how hard, we talked about voting. We talked about voting. We talked about how hard it is to break out of the tribal. But I have to believe there are people of good conscience out there who are trying to do it. Yeah, I know. By the way, if any of you are a person of good conscience trying to do it, (laughs) <laughs> please, write us,
1: please write us a. Please write us a, a, note that you're a person of good conscience.
0: All right. Do you think bigotry is born out of ignorance? Let's see. But
1: this is coming from Facebook. Okay. From some from a listener on, on Facebook Live. They're, they posted. If you're listening to the podcast for the first time, we live stream this in case and get comments from Facebook. And you could tune onto Facebook and see if if we pop up if we pop up live on your feed. So this person asks, us, do that? We think bigotry is born out of ignorance, whereas racism is born out of malice. I think that. Th- that's sort of, that would be too, uh, it wouldn't be nuanced enough. I mean, I think...
0: I can see why you would say it that way. Ideology,
1: the way ideology works, right, is that you don't know it's working. And so it... it right. It, the fact that, like, a lot of the most pernicious forms of racism were not aware of that they're working the, the way they are, you know? Like, it's just, I mean, it's just interesting because... Like, if you're black in this country and you want to survive, you've got to learn, you've got to know a lot about white culture, right? And, right. How, and if you're white, you don't have to know anything about black culture to thrive. And so, like, so very, so like part of like white privilege, right? It's just the ability to. To not know what's going on with the racist system we live in, because you don't have to,
0: right? Or, or let's take, for instance, the, the you know, gosh, it seems like so long ago, the controversy about Confederate statues. You know? Oh gosh, yeah, <laughs> that was oh gosh, that was years ago, six months ago, whatever. But the whole the whole uh, myth of the the lost cause, you know, the great lost cause, the South was really a lost cause. They were really fighting for states' rights, a certain way of life. Well, that is a myth that was invented by racist people. And so part of embracing that saying I'm not a racist, I'm 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 fighting for a return to traditional values. Well, the tradition of values behind the lost cause was the institution of slavery. <laughs> so so I think they do they play you know mouse and niggers do play play together. Uh I think um whether it's the Christian version of it or the Socratic version to know thyself or I want to know God and want to know my soul. Is which is what, um, you know, Augustine's version of that. I think that's still, the, you know, self-knowledge is always a painful process because if we truly are open to find out things about us, we're going to find out those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. All right. Vote. Okay, what about, um, what do you, what? how do we break the cycle? Okay, that's those of us who are opposed to uh, Trump and are on a daily basis, uh, agitated about what's going on. What is a constructive way to take some of that angst and some of that negative energy and some of that, you know, anger. Kickboxing classes. (laughs) I I didn't.
1: Definitely Facebook. Like go on Facebook and write comments to people you disagree with, especially stuff that you wouldn't say to their face and write angry emojis. That is what helps okay
0: issue. all right well that seems to be a lot of people seem to be going that direction
1: <laughs> yeah but i just want to say i think that before like i think that the tendency to so there's this big debate right okay nobody blamed the bernie sanders uh bernie sanders for the bernie sanders supporter that shot steve scalise the house majority whip right uh so people are saying well why do we blame trump well I I wouldn't say Trump's responsible for someone's actions. Like nobody's respond when somebody does something that's heinous, right? Even if somebody has, you know, even if somebody says irresponsible things, you know, like that that, that doesn't mean that that person's responsible for another person's out, you know, immoral or uh, horrendous actions. I I do think though it, it is it is fair to ask like. The president of the United States isn't just another citizen using free speech, right? right? You and and you, and you are, you have the the political rhetorical stage in a way that no other person, elected official, or has. Or so I mean, I do think it's fair to say, is the rhetoric, does the rhetoric sort of throw gas on a fire that's been burning before Trump, right? Again, but again, the difference with Trump is it's the bug versus the feature thing. Right. You know like this is a feature of the way he does politics. It's not a problem. He doesn't do it in spite of the tribalism and divisiveness. He kind of seizes on that stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean the certain the, the certain uh the evolution of Donald Trump. I certainly um you can go all the way back to Lee Atwater, um who was you know the guy ran um who I ran who worked for Reagan also ran Bush's campaign um uh who's the guy who Basically, the, uh, we just found out the Gary Hart thing was a setup. He, he confessed that at, at the end of, and it was not Lee was not Lee, is that Lee Atwalder? They No, is that right? The guy who was the uh, South Carolinian, South Carolinian political activist, Lee Atwater is not the right name. I don't uh, know. I forget his name.
1: I just watched a special on Gary Hart a couple weeks ago.
0: Anyway, but. Um, but you can go back, whether it be the new Gingrich or probably Pat Buchanan. I mean, you can see the direct line to this. Right? Yeah. Because this is not Barry Goldwater's conservatism. All those guys have left the Republican Party yeah. for the most part. Uh, but, you know, I would, I would, I may want to push back on the idea about responsibility. Um, I po- I post this on Facebook. Abraham Heschel said, in a free society, a uh, few are guilty, but all are responsible. And in a certain degree, for instance, if, you know, you don't. You know, if you don't light the match, okay, you're not. You're not guilty necessarily of starting a fire, but if you're giving the speech going "burn, baby, burn." I think there is there is there there's there is some culpability to contributing, particularly um, when you realize that you have to realize the time we're in. So I think you have to. For, for instance, I think the screaming of people, of politicians in restaurants, um, that is, the phenomenon seems to be predominantly. Uh, progressive activists yelling at Republicans in restaurants. I think that's totally uh, inappropriate. And more, you know, more leaders need to come out and say that's, you know, that's wrong. I mean, because that's something that's going to escalate someday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's, there's all, I mean. uh, And because you're, you're emotional in a
1: state when you're doing stuff like that. Yeah. You're not, you're not, it's not a kind of trained Acts of disobedience, where you know when people are going to get arrested to protest. Right. There's this sort of deep training that goes into that. Very deep training. Yeah. So I, yeah, no, I think, and you're right. I mean, I think, I mean, I do think if
0: and and for one thing, the woman who was sexually assaulted confronting uh, a flake in the elevator, that's a different order. Yeah. Than going to some someone's so ad- yeah ad- somebody's is out at, is it, out I mean. at dinner. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know. I mean, and I, but I do. You're right. I mean, I do think rhetoric. I think. I I think like to say to draw causality directly to say well because of this then this you, you know is 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 sometimes a bit much but the, but I do think you're right I think to say to what degree does this contribute to things like that like and I you know and I think the rhetoric the, the incendiary rhetoric certainly uh you know I mean again was the guy who sent these pipe bombs unhinged absolutely you know do I think. The average Trump supporter is is uh, sending pipe bombs. Absolutely not. But but for unhinged people, do do you create a sort of context that gives them ideas that that gives them uh, you know yeah I mean it possible yeah and I think
0: you, you have to be aware. I mean I think the I think words matter rhetoric matters. I do think that, and I think irresponsible political ads too. I mean uh, calling calling lawful protest mobs. That's dangerous. Yes, yeah. that's, and that's and that's that's wrong and that's immoral, absolutely immoral. And I think uh, um, you know part of the trouble of the postmodern moment we're in. Uh, and again, you know, you I mean, you want to see some horrendous, dirty campaigning. You know, go back and and read about the campaign between Jefferson. and Right. Adams. Yeah. Right. It's, Jefferson. Yeah, Jefferson. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not that's not a new thing, but uh, internet mass media. You know, directed uh, marketing that is new, and that and that's and that that's creating. um, I think even uh, it's not necessarily it's more intense, but the potential for wider spread damage. Well, yeah, I I think you know Francis Fukuyama just wrote
1: a book on identity. It's really interesting. He he argues that you know it's interesting in our moment we have increasingly more ways to construct identity and with gender and along, and again, political, the way we think about politics has changed. It's become an identity in a way like a self-conceived kind of identity in a way that it, it, it has, hasn't done in necessarily in previous decades. And then, but he said, you know, at the same time we're having all these identities we're able to assert and construct, we have an erosion of a common identity over above all that. So like that's what would create some of the tribalism too. I think that you don't, not only do you think of yourself more as X or Y, but there's, you think of yourself less overall as one American under one American umbrella that covers it all, you know? And and so that, you know, and again, things like social media, uh, there's so many things that exacerbate, you know, we could chicken in the egg like all day, but, but I think somehow all these things do kind of come together to, to create the weird phenomena of the moment
0: we're in. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, one of the options, my response is I'm increasingly finding myself reminding myself and also my churches now, I guess I have two churches now, my my parishes that I'm working it's in. like
1: an old-school Methodist, uh, yeah, multiple-point old, charges.
0: Yeah, is that the role of the church is to reach out to the broken people, um, these angry, broken, marginal people. I mean, in some levels, I mean, the the, the bomber. They're both the bomber and the shooter are caricatures of of the pathetic, isolated person. Um, But those are people Jesus died to redeem. And the kind of uh, you know, I think (laughs) we we sing this song. Matter of fact, uh, I've known this song ever since I heard Gary Rand sing it at Creation nineteen eighty, I think. Yeah, but it's been my favorite song of every church I've ever been part of. It's called "A Family of Love." We are we are a family of love. learning the way of the Lord. And I think the response that we have as Christians, the same one we we should be having for the last 2,000 years, is to reach out to a broken world with the good news that you can be healed, you can be forgiven, that in Christ there is no male, no female, no free or slave, no Jew or Gentile. All the the gender, socioeconomic, racial differentiations, differentiations that come through culture and nature are obliterated in the cross, and that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down in his body. That dividing wall of hostility, um, we live in a country that's trying to build that wall back up.
1: Yeah, and I wonder how much, like, the urgency, like, when I was saying, how do we respond? How do we respond? How do we respond? I wonder, like, how much of that is is the sense that, like, we're not regularly responding to the, you know what I mean? Like, this, yeah, no. it's sort of like, you know, the, the, as if. The right response in the extreme situation can fix, can undo the, what what's built up
0: to precipitate it. You know, to me, one of the best moments I have ever had as pastor was the day after nine eleven, and I had a, I re- already had a regular scheduled meeting with my elders and deacons, um, and that. We got together, and, and again, if you remember the day after, we still, you still didn't know everything was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we had not had anybody killed in our congregation, but we had people that were in the buildings that got out. And people knew. I mean, there was a, a close friend of one of the members of our congregation who was on one of the planes, so uh, there was a pilot in the area that uh, had gone down, so it was in one of the planes. So we we knew people. and uh, And, you know, I said, okay, what do we need to do differently now in this situation? And one of my deacons said, nothing. Mm. We're doing it. We just need to keep doing it. Mm. So I think that's to me, I mean, if you're about the kingdom of God, um, it's as much needed today as it was 10 years yeah. ago. And I think that I do think part of maybe being our, the proper response is to never lose a sense of urgency about the brokenness of the world. And because we understand the nature of broken humanity to never become comfortable <laughs> to always be weary of knowing that the next dictator the next pogom the next uh, genocide um, is just a is just one series of human choices away from happening that's that's uh, that's because that's a realistic view of, of, of humanity <laughs> uh, a
1: friend episcopal. Uh, uh, Friend who says, always says, we're always, uh, everybody's just uh, two two days away and a couple bad decisions, a couple bad decisions and two days away, or a couple bad decisions and three days away from being a tabloid headline. And yeah. a lot of days I'm on day two.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's well, you know, and, uh, you know, Aaron asked the question do we believe this is Cap- again from Facebook, yeah. everybody? Here we got another yeah.
1: Facebook Live question.
0: And in, in, in reality, the question is saying, what about the tribalism within the church? you know she mentions the manger break between Protestants and Catholic, but that 's face it, there's so many subdivisions you know we have replicated the Tower of Babel within Christianity, both organized and disorganized Christianity, although I always laugh when someone says to me i don 't believe in organized religion. I go well, obviously you 've never been part of ours exactly <laughs> but I actually think that but saying no to tribalism way, for instance um the Jews, I don't know if you saw where the, um, the Muslim, the early area Muslims of Pittsburgh. Uh,
1: oh, yeah. It's like $135,000. They raised $100,000. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, so, um, and I've, I've been part of those things where whatever across the faith divides, our belief in God and, and our love for humanity transcends that. And uh, so I think um, maybe a little less concerned about what divides us as Christians, and a little more affirmation of our unity in Christ and, and confessing every week our brokenness and how we we participate not only in the splintering and tribalism of society, but we frequently participate in it among our own Christian family.
1: good dose of humility never hurts anybody.
0: All right. A good theologian, as Dr. Darrell Guter once said, a good theologian is a humble theologian. Amen to that. All right. Take care, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation, and will join us back here next time. Until then, thanks for listening, and God bless.